All right, I'm going to read the first five verse, verses of James again, and we're going to look at the second half this morning. You know, I'm aware this is a, a challenging book. As I've told different people that I've been preaching the book of James, some of the guys that I know in ministry said, well, why would you want to preach James? It's so difficult. It's so, it's so challenging. Well, I think that's exactly the point, isn't it? If we just want to come every Sunday and kind of have our ears tickled and not go away and not be changed or challenged in any way, then, then we should really just go and join a tennis club. <laughs> Shouldn't we? Well, I mean, the, the guys that do recreation far better than we do. So if it's about recreation and it's about uh, that kind of thing, well, then we can go and do some other things that do it much better than we do. We, we really want to get together and enjoy the presence of God and be challenged and transformed. And so I'm just saying that because I know this portion, uh, particularly James 5, is, is a d- difficult portion. And uh, I'm going to try and do my best to encourage you out of it this morning. All right, so in James chapter 5, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And I said to you last week that this portion very much is the tone, has the tone of uh, one of the Old Testament prophets like Amos or like Malachi. And James is speaking like an Old Testament prophet to the, the church. He is really giving them a hard time. He's being very straight with his people. And so I looked at the first half of these uh, verses last week and uh, said to you that... Um, James is really trying to get his friends' attention and to get them to repent of a wrong attitude towards money and wealth. And uh, I had a look at that last week, and I would encourage you to, to, to have a listen to the podcast if you weren't here last week. But someone once said this. Someone said, money to a 21st century British evangelical, that's all of us, living in the century is a bit like sex in the Victorian age. Everybody thinks about it, but nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> Everybody thinks about it, but nobody wants to talk about it. But like the Victorians in terms of sex. We, we think about money a lot, but we don't want to talk about it. Well, James is not scared to address the issue of wealth and money, and nor was Jesus. He spoke a lot about it. So James is talking to these people. Uh, as we discovered last week, they were rich, they were being presumptuous, about where they would live, where they would work, and how they would make money. And I, t- I tried to highlight some things out of this portion for you last week um, about financial security, not being overly concerned about financial security, not being just um, consumed with becoming more and more middle class, more and more well-off, bigger house, better car, more money. Uh, craving, this craving for more that sometimes we can get into as middle class people. And I said to you last week that that's a challenge that all of us have to learn to overcome. This desire to be more wealthy, thinking that if we are just a little bit more wealthy, a little bit more well-off, we will be happy. 
I read something, uh, some of you might have heard of J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican bishop. He said a profound thing. He said this, Wealth is no mark of God's favor. Poverty is no mark of God's displeasure. Isn't that profound? I think some of us who grew up in the faith movement uh, consume this thing that if we are rich, then it automatically means that God has blessed us. No, no, no. Not all the time can be a mark of God's blessing. It doesn't mean it's always a mark of God's blessing. And so we have to learn to walk with this tension in our hearts. And so I said three things last week. First, these people were tempted to put all of their trust in their possessions and not in God. And I encouraged you. I said, let's be a community that doesn't put our trust in our possessions, what we have, but ultimately puts our trust in God. Second, that these people were tempted to see money as a harmless thing. And I try to say to you last week, money is not a harmless thing. Money eats at you. If, you. if you don't overcome that thing in your life, you are always motivated by a craving for more. And let's be honest, our, our, our culture bombards us every minute of every day with the latest thing that we have to have. Isn't it true? That's what adver- advertising is. Advertising gives you an appetite for things that you didn't even know that you needed. <laughs> Isn't that true? And suddenly when you see an advert, oh, I need that. Really? (laughs) Perhaps you didn't need it. But no, advertising convinces us that we need things that perhaps we we don't really need at all. And the scripture says, I remember I read out of Timothy, it says that um, the love of money is the root of all evil. And those that have gone after that have pierced themselves with many griefs. You can lose your family, you can lose your relationship with God, you can lose your intimacy with Him if we run after the wrong things. And then I said the third temptation that these people had to overcome was that because they were so happy to be here on earth, because they were so satisfied with their material possessions, they had lost a desire for heaven, they had lost a desire for eternity. They weren't consumed with eternity anymore, like Paul was, who lived and was motivated because he didn't want people to go to a godless eternity. They were quite happy just to get on with life because, quite frankly, it was nice down here. And I said, let's be a community also that gets our hearts consumed with a passion for eternity. And fourthly, James said quite strongly in the, in, the, in the last little verse I looked at last week, he speaks to those that would hoard their wealth and save it up for a rainy day and say, uh-uh, guys, we need to be using what we have for those sowing into the lives of others that have less. And that's what uh, the fourth thing I said. And so today I want to look at the second half of these um, verses. And the real question here, I suppose it's a similar question to what he looked at in the first half, is James against rich people? And I want to say again, no, he's not against rich people. James is simply a man who doesn't respect, is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have some people that are his favorites and some that are not his favorites. And this is why he takes on these rich Christians, these are saved people, he takes on these rich Christians who are landowners, people that have property. And now he addresses these people that have property. And he says, there are some guys that are working for you that are also Christian, and it doesn't seem to be that you are too concerned with their welfare. That's what he's saying. They're more concerned with saving up money for themselves. And so he says, he uses this language, he says, your money's corrupt, it's tarnished. In other words, it's losing its value. As you try and hoard it, it loses its value. It's not worth what you think it's worth. Because you're withholding from the needy, you're withholding from God, and you're selfish and self-indulgent. And so I have four points that I'd like to just bring out of the second chapter that I believe God would... um, would address in our lives as his friends, as his community.
community of believers. The first is this, is that it's a call in our lives to joyful obedience for all of God's people. There's a call in our lives. You see, I think there's a peculiar sickness that has come upon the church as I look at the church, particularly in the last five years, and it's been a growing concern for me. There are some Christians that seem to take the matter of obedience quite lightly and quite uh, casually. They say, well, I'm saved, I'm justified by faith, I know I'm going to heaven, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, and that's all that matters, really. And so... I'm just going to get on with my life and not give myself to other things, prayer, reading the words, community of believers, being faithful with my finances, because, you know, that's all rather legalistic and don't put any stuff on me. Well, these kind of Christians that think like this have seem to have forgotten that God is really, really passionately concerned about obedience. He loves obedience more than anything. Your sacrifices I do not desire, the Scripture says, but I, 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 I desire your obedience. He desires intimacy with us. And I've been trying to speak to you out of the life of Abraham and say what set apart Abraham. Abraham was the prototype Christian after the law was done away with when Jesus was was hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. It meant that the law was finished and we went back to the original Christian. The original Christian was Abraham, a man who walked by faith and not by sight. And he's our prototype outside of Jesus of what a Christian life should look like. And obedience is a serious matter because obedience has to do with rewards. There are rewards for us as Christians, both here on earth and in heaven. And so James is taking these guys on as people who've forgotten about obedience. They've forgotten about what the Word says to them. And so he takes on these rich Christians and they're saying, he says to them, you are forcing God to treat you as an enemy because you are abusing other people. He says it quite plainly. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you've kept them back by fraud, and they are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He's saying, Christians, employers, how are you treating your workers? That's what he's saying. He's talking to Christian capitalists. They were employers and they were mistreating their employees. They were exploiting those that had mowed their fields and tilled their crops. They had forgotten obedience, that we are called to treat all people with dignity and fairness. I can't help but reflect that wherever the true gospel is preached, the oppressed are set free. Wherever the true gospel is preached, the oppressed are set free. This was true with slavery in America. It was true with the ending of slavery here in the UK with Wilberforce and others, and was true in the ending of apartheid in South Africa, the nation that I come from. The church was integral in getting people to see this is wrong. And where the true gospel was preached, people were freed and and, uh, liberty came. And if you haven't seen Miracle Rising, Kevin, my brother-in-law, worked on this amazing um, documentary on the History Channel about the end of apartheid in South Africa. I encourage you to go and, and, and get hold of it. It's called Miracle Rising. Wonderful documentation of how apartheid ended in South Africa. And so it's our task, your and mine, as Christians living in the 21st century, to continue to live and preach the gospel, which is good news first to the poor, and the promises of the, of the gospel is it sets the oppressed free. 
And so I want to encourage you in your life as God speaks to you. And we're not all going to be involved in the same thing. We're not all going to do the same thing. But wherever God is speaking to you, perhaps you want to get involved in an area of social justice around um, child labor or the exploitation of, of, of people for sexual trafficking. Whatever it is, you might feel God is saying, I want you to be involved in that thing. Give, it to, give yourself to that. It's part of living the gospel. I want to encourage you. Whatever God does in this community and however many people give themselves to different things, hallelujah. It's when the gospel comes and sets us free that we can help to set others free. We don't pursue social justice for its sake. We pursue it because of the gospel, because of the good news that God has called us to proclaim and to live out. Amen? And so I want to encourage you to a joyful life of obedience. That's part of our privilege as Christians. It's part of our our responsibility as Christians. And it's part of our reward here on earth and in heaven. Uh, The reward here on earth is that we see other people liberated and set free into freedom that Christ has for them. And our reward in heaven one day is that we'll hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. First thing. Second thing, out of this portion, it's honorable to work. It's a good thing to work. There's nothing wrong with the fact that these Christians had money. There's not wrong, nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. It's, there's nothing wrong with the fact that these guys were laboring in the fields and they were tilling and working the fields. That's a good thing. It's an honorable thing to work. It's a most satisfying thing to work. It's how many of you don't feel good when you feel you're not being productive? I'm a bit like that. It's a good thing to work. You feel good when you work. But here's the problem. It's a different thing when you feel like you're working hard and you're being underpaid. That's the issue here. How many of you would deny that the most demoralizing thing on the face of the planet is to work hard and feel like you're getting underpaid? It's not a pleasant feeling. And I know many of you have experienced that in your lives. Jesus said in Luke 10, the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And there Paul is making it even wider. He's saying, even those that preach the gospel deserve a wage. (laughs) Even those that, and maybe you think that's the lowest thing on the face of the planet, to preach the gospel. Well, even those that preach the gospel deserve a wage. That's what Paul is saying. Not just physical labor. In other words, he's saying anybody that does anything that is honorable for other people and helps other people deserves to get paid well for it. And so I want to commit to this as, as, as one of the leaders of this church. If you feel like you're in a job and you're being underpaid, I want to pray for you. <laughs> I want to pray for you. Come and tell me or tell one of the other guys. Why? Because God's people should be paid a living wage. And we can certainly start with each other. Amen? That we stand with each other. We make it a, a prayer point that we pray for each other and that we get people get promoted if they work hard so that they can earn a good wage. Yes, come on now. What was the reaction of these people that were being exploited? It says they cried out to God. They cried out. There's something, my friends, in you and I, if you feel that you are deserving more, I want to encourage you to cry out to God. Don't complain. Cry out to Him. He's your provider. Say, Jesus, help me. I need more. I want you above all things to please provide for my family. Don't moan. 
Moaning doesn't help anyone. Crying out to Him helps. He is the one who will help us. You know, and uh, for those of us that have money, we must, we must resist this, this temptation to look on others that don't have and just say, oh, they'll, they'll have enough. That's a lack of compassion, isn't it? I saw this on Facebook this week. A young friend of mine, a young man, put this comment on Facebook. He said, what's wrong with the, what's wrong with the UK? It's too socialist. That's the problem in the UK. It's too socialist. Can I just tell you the small print of that kind of comment? What he really is saying is this. I don't want to share what I have with others that have less. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, I work hard. Why should what I have, why should I share it with others? I want to say to you, the real problem in the UK is not one of socialism. The real problem is one of a lack of love. The real problem is that there are too many that are selfish. The real problem is that there's enough money on this planet to help everyone that needs. There's enough food on this planet to, to, to uh, feed everyone who is starving. This is the problem. There are not men and women, sufficient men and women, who are unselfish enough to sow that money where it needs to go. That's the real problem. Selfishness. And we have to say, unfortunately, that there's a testimony in the church that where there has been injustice, where there has been a lack, too many Christians and ministers of the gospel have stood by and done nothing. You see, I studied political science at university. That's why when Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people, that's why so many people resonated with that. And they said, yes, that's true. Why? Because too many were suffering in the world, on earth, and being, he said, you're just being sold this thing that everything's going to be all right in heaven, and uh, there were too many people on earth, too little people on earth doing anything to change the status quo, and so people believe Marx. You know, I've been thinking this week, the only thing that convinces people untouched by the gospel is not our philosophical arguments. It's not the fact that we understand the end times well. It's not our theology. What affects people at the end of the day is when they see living examples of the gospel. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in debt, you helped me get out of debt. It's that kind of compassion that brings down the presence of God to the earth. I think one of the greatest challenges the church faces is the compassionate use of wealth. How do we use our wealth compassionately to serve the community and to serve other people? And I'm not saying I have all the ideas, all the answers, but I am saying it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Third little thing I think this portion tells us, that faith must be vindicated in works. Our works don't save us. These were men and women of faith. They were saved. They were going to heaven. James is reminding them, he's saying, there must be a vindication of your faith by your life. Your faith must somehow be combined with works in your life. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the relevance of our Christian faith, what we say we believe, is seen in how we live. And how we live doesn't save us. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to say is this. What do you think the world thinks of a rich man, an employer, a Christian, who goes to church religiously every Sunday, prays with God's people, but then on Monday to Friday he's nasty to everyone that he employs in his office? What kind of testimony is that to anybody? What do you think that shows people of, of, the, of, of Christ? 
And so just as James is not letting anyone off the hook, God doesn't let us off the hook either as believers. The challenge for all of us is, is there a vindication of our faith in our works? In other words, are we bringing the presence of God into our workplace by how we just simply respond to people? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to change us, that we are more gentle, more kind, so that when people around us, they experience the kindness and the gentleness of God through us? I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. That's one of the lessons I've had to learn for 20 years, being married to a gentle lady, is that I can be more gentle. <laughs> now, the fourth thing I want to say out of this um, portion, God hears the cries of the oppressed. God hears the cries. God sees all that we do. And if we are happy to walk over other people Monday to Friday, God hears their cries. If there are people that are feeling demoralized by how we treat them, God sees it. And the worst miscalculation that you and I can make is to think that God doesn't take notice, that He fails to take notice. And that's the biggest problem that these Christian capitalists, these these, uh, landowners that James is talking to, that's the biggest problem that they had. Because there was no judgment immediately, because God didn't seem to be doing anything, they just carried on as they were. It didn't matter, it didn't bother them to, at all. They would go to church on a Sunday, enjoy the worship, the ministry, break bread, put money in the basket. But on Monday, when they left home and they got on the train, their life was very different. God hears. So we might feel good about what we experience on a Sunday, but the real question is, how are we treating others that we love during the week? Our work colleagues, our employees. To quote an RT, RTism, does the dove stay or does the dove fly away <laughs> in the office? Does the dove stay or does the dove fly away? Well, maybe you're saying, well, Ant, I don't even think James should have the right to speak to us and challenge us like this. I mean, he's a preacher. He's not a businessman. He doesn't understand business. Are you saying he's a politician? How, he doesn't seem to understand politics. Is he preaching a social gospel? Uh, why should James be able to speak into our lives like this? Well, he has the answer. There's no area in your life or in my life from which we can exclude God. That's it. You and I can't tell God to stay out of social issues. We can't tell God to stay out of politics. It's true that the finer details of how we work those things out in in politics and social issues are not best done by those whose call is to preach. Uh, A full-time preacher is not a full-time social worker. If you're called to preach, you preach the gospel. If you're called to social work, you, you do that. But on the other hand, you can't keep preachers out of these issues either. Why? Because preachers are called to reveal the Word of God to God's people. And God's Word has something to say to every area of your and my life, whether we find that comfortable or not. God speaks into our lives in every area of your life. And that's why this book of James is so uncomfortable. (laughs) It addresses everything in our lives. Our attitudes, our motives, how we speak to each other, um, everything. Wisdom from heaven, walking by the Spirit. And so, yeah, James. James is, I don't give him whatever title you want to. He's the senior pastor. He's the, he's the lead elder, whatever, of the church in Jerusalem. And he knows 
much about the day-to-day life of all of the people, rich and poor. And so he's not afraid to speak to them. And when he sees rich Christians being greedy, like in chapter 5, he speaks to them. When he sees them being socially insensitive, he speaks to them. When he sees them being self-indulgent, he speaks to them. James is a man of courage. I would call you, as my friends, all of us, to courage. That we learn to speak out when we need to speak out. Yeah, we think of the courage of the battlefield and the courage of, uh, of, of the English rugby team. And, oh, that's great courage. I admire that courage. You know what? It also is incredibly courageous to be the only one in the office to speak out and say no. Incredibly courageous. And it's uncomfortable. <laughs> and yet God calls us to be those that speak out for issues of justice and what he's called us to. Why? Because God is listening and God cares for the oppressed. Remember Deuteronomy 24, 14? Don't oppress a hired worker, a hired worker or one who's poor and needy, whether he's one of your own brothers or one of the wanderers who are in your land. So, I mean, the Old Testament says if you're a resident of the land, don't exploit those people. Don't exploit immigrants either. The Bible's quite clear. Give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets because he's poor and he counts on it. And lest his cries against you go up to the Lord, and you are guilty of sin. Let's be those that help to liberate the oppressed wherever we can. And then lastly, the last thing that he speaks into is self-indulgence. And this is very uncomfortable, isn't it? He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. (laughs) These are saved people. These are Christians. And so there's a word of warning here for all of us. And it's saying even Christians can, in a sense, come under the judgment of God as the, pro- the cries of the poor rise up and God hears them. And the image here, he's saying the Christian who is, gets so bloated in self-indulgence is like, described like a fattened animal. That's what he says. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The, 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 the image is that of, of, of an animal going to be sacrificed. The fat animal. And so the implication is quite clear. When it comes to time to slaughter the animal, the one that the butcher is going to go for first is the one that is fat. The one that is given to hoarding. The best thing that you and I can do is to give up hoarding our money, is to start caring for the poor, and to forget about our ambition to have an increasingly luxurious life. (laughs) that's the best thing you and I can do if we want to live for the kingdom. You see, remember I reminded you of Malachi last week. It said, I will be swift against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who press the hired worker, the widow, etc., etc. And I said to you that Malachi goes on and says, when we are backslidden in our lives, it affects every area of our life. So when, if we are happy to oppress the workers and we are happy to rip people off, we don't want to give to God either. That's what he says. He goes on Malachi 5, he says, you oppress the workers and you rob God. He puts the two together. And my encouragement to you is that the temptation is to think if we don't give to the kingdom, we are better off because we have a little bit more for ourselves. My friends, if we don't give to the kingdom, we are impoverished in every way. And the gospel is impoverished. We're not better off, we're worse off in every way. And so in summary, remember all of these things I've been talking to you about have been in the context of James saying, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. 
And so these are all practical things of what it means to walk by the Spirit. These are all practical things of what it means to live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. These are all practical things of what it means to demonstrate humility as we walk with Jesus. These are all practical things. And so here's a summary of what uh, what James has been saying. And then I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship some more. He says this, if you look in chapter 4 and 5, God resists worldly Christians that don't walk in humility or in obedience. God resists those that have robbed the gospel of its indiscriminate offer for all and have said, no, actually, what we really like is rich people. We don't like the poor. God resists those kind of people. God resists those in the church that fight and quarrel and want to get their own way. God resists worldly Christians that kiss the world on the one hand and say, oh, Jesus, I want intimacy with you, and then they're happy to walk with the world arm in arm Monday to Saturday. God resists those that don't love his church. I read something that was profound this week. This person wrote this. He says, people want to kiss the face of Jesus. We all want intimacy with Jesus. We all want that kind of sense of his presence. And they said this, it's impossible to kiss the face of Jesus without loving the body of Christ. It's profound. Oh, I just want Jesus. Just want Jesus. Don't want his church. His church irritates me. I don't want to be part of a church. It irritates me. Don't like the preacher irritates me. The worship irritates me. Don't want to be part of it. But I want the presence of God. Uh-uh. Jesus' head is connected to his body. Two on the same. You love Jesus, want intimacy with him, love his church. God resists those that oppress their workers. That's what we've just this morning. God resists nations in which that practice is rough. But it's the good part. God gives more grace to those that are humble. God gives more and more and more and more grace to those that walk in joyful obedience. We are saved by the blood of Jesus, absolutely, and then we can enjoy more and more grace as we walk in humble, joyful obedience, saying, God, not my will, but yours. That's what it means to be a friend of God. That's what it means to to enjoy intimacy with Him. That's what it means to enjoy His presence daily. I don't know if you remember the, the story of Cain and Abel. And the scripture says, the blood of Abel, the murdered brother, cried out from the ground, and God heard. And the cries of the oppressed, the cries of the workers, the, cry, the cries of, of the exploited people rise up to God in the same way, and He hears. He hears their cries. And wherever there's oppression, it always results in strife, riots, and violence. And if you look at the news right now, all over the world, there are rife, there are rife, there are Riots, strife, and violence. Where? Where there's been oppression. But there is something that is worse than that, and this is what Amos says in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, listen to the language, God is saying, I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. That's a terrifying thing. It says there will come a famine on the land where you won't hear the word of God anymore. I want to say this to you. When I look at the UK, 
I see how exceedingly rare it is to hear the undiluted preaching of the gospel. It is a rare thing to hear the gospel preached. Why do you think that is so? I'm not here to point fingers at anyone, but I am here to say that I think it's because there's a famine on the land. And God has sent a famine on the land, not of bread or material things or thirst for water, but on his, a famine on His Word. Perhaps that's got to do with the fact that many people are exploited. Perhaps it's got to do with the fact that there are still many selfish. Perhaps it's got to do with the fact that there are many Christians that are still walking in disobedience, casual about obedience before God. And I want to say to you, and I'm trying not to be serious, but I know this is a a weighty message. I can't help it. This is what the Scripture says. I want to encourage you and I. The time is too crucial in our nation right now to be casual about obedience in our lives. It's too crucial. This nation is in desperate trouble. And so for you and I to get casual about our Christian lives, it's not going to cut it. And I'm not trying to put anything on you. All I'm trying to say is this. The best thing that you and I can do is to live happy, joyful lives of obedience. Letting the gospel transform us, and as it transforms us, change us. And as it changes us, it changes our interaction with people, it changes our friends, it changes our family. That's the best thing we can do for the the nation right now. Why? Because God, Jesus says he wants to bring many sons to glory. Many sons and daughters to glory. And it's going to happen as you and I live out the gospel in our lives. That we see the nation transformed. That we will be those that enjoy his presence. That live in his presence. Amen? I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to worship. We've got some time. And I want to encourage you just to let God settle these things in your hearts by the power of His Spirit. Amen? Father, I want to thank you for your words. And uh, Lord, I thank you so much for everything that you are doing. And I thank you, Lord, for every teacher in this auditorium, every nurse, every uh, housewife, every person working in London. I thank you that daily, Lord, you give us opportunities to be Christ to other people. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be those that genuinely care as you cared, with compassion as you care with compassion. And Father, whatever area of life we are active in, I just want to say thank you, Father, for the gifts that are in this church. Thank you for every unsafe person that we know. Thank you, Lord, that you are determined You are lovingly determined to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you'd use us. We are imperfect. We get so many things wrong. But, Jesus, that you would use us to help something of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That we would be those that desire your presence more than anything in our lives. That we would be those that desire for the dove to rest upon us and not not to, to leave that we will be those that are genuinely seeing more patience, kindness, and fruitfulness in our lives just because you are transforming us. And Jesus, I pray, any sense of anxiety, I pray that you take that off people. I pray by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you would come, and your burden is light, 
and your, your, your load is, is not heavy. And Lord, as we walk with you, we pray that you do this in us supernaturally by the power of your Spirit. And we simply rest in that today. In Jesus' name.